Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We've all seen the pushback to Michelle Obama as she has attempted to improve food quality and nutrition in our nation's schools. In part, it reflects the degree to which everything is politicized these days, but it also reflects the degree to which food is and has been a political, cultural, and historical touchstone. It's long been observed that if we want to understand the history of a nation or of a city or of a period of time, we can start by looking at its food. My guests, Jane Ziegelman and Andrew Coe, have long taken this approach, and now they look at the food of Depression-era America in their new book, A Square Meal. Jane Ziegelman is the author of the widely acclaimed 97 Orchard, an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. Andrew Coe is a writer and independent scholar specializing in culinary history. He's the author of Chop Suey, a cultural history of Chinese food in the United States. And it is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Coe and Jane Ziegelman to talk about A Square Meal, a culinary history of the Great Depression. Jane, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Andrew, I want to first talk a little bit about this idea of really using food, of looking at food from a historical perspective and a cultural perspective to really understand a particular time and a particular place. Well, um, you know, history was um, has traditionally been um, in the past something of talking about great men and great, you know, political parties and great great movements. Um, but history is also um, about the life of the people um, who lived through these various eras. And um, we have, we both love food, Jane and I love food, but we also love understanding um, how the pe- people ate um, in our past and how that informs um, today, how it informs what we eat today and um, our relationship to food and farming and agriculture and, um, and on and on. Because as you know, all of this is linked um, as it's an inextricable part of our daily life. Right. And um, it goes from you know, our daily lives all the way up to Washington, D.C. and what goes on in, in Congress. Um, so um, food is, is a key um, element of, um, of, of history and life. And Jane, in looking at food and the nation's food habits in the run-up to the Depression, one of the things that you talk about in A Square Meal is this idea that there really were problems long before the Depression hit in terms of America really dealing with food crises. Um, yeah, that is true. You know, we, we think of ourselves as a nation of abundance, and, and we are a nation um, that, is, that has been historically exceptionally well-fed. But not everyone uh, was able to participate in that abundance. And um, one of the developments that we chart is um, are those less fortunate Americans who didn't have access to sort of the great wealth, the great um, uh, edible wealth of our country. And what began to change, Jane, once the Depression hit? How did it immediately affect the awareness of the food issues? Yeah, that's a really, um, it's a good question, and the the answer is complicated. Um, America is a big place, and um, that awareness changed differently in different parts of the country. So, of course, we have to accept that all sorts of different um, developments were taking place depending on where we were. But um, what happened is 
um, it became more and more difficult for American homemakers to use the strategies they had always relied on to feed their families. And most especially, it became more and more difficult to, um, to nourish their kids on a diet that depended on large pieces of meat, so, um, which, which historically was at the center of the American diet. So that was the first really important adjustment. Andrew? You know, that was what Jane is, is talking about was what happened, you know, to mostly to sort of middle class families. Mm-hmm. But um, the Depression was also for, for lower class families, um, um, you know, in the cities and, and poor people in the country. The Depression was kind of like the tide going out. And suddenly um, the, whole, the rest of the country realized that there were large groups in the United States who did not have enough to eat. And not only not only due to the due to the depression, but um, had not been eating well for, for years or decades. And, and um, so suddenly people became aware of the bread lines in their midst in, in big cities like New York and Chicago. And um, in the South, and the great big cotton belt was stretched from uh, Virginia all the way to Texas, um, the poor sharecroppers who worked on these cotton farms, which were everywhere, um, were eating something very, very close to a starvation diet. I mean, they, the foods that they normally ate even before the Depression um, were woefully inadequate as far as nutrition and caused all kinds of horrible diseases like pellagra and rickets. And um, people suddenly became aware that there's poverty in our midst. And um, that really changed the thinking of a lot of people and, and changed uh, what happened in Washington in a very profound way. And there were those, Jane, that saw this as an opportunity to really find a way in to address the nation's eating habits in general. Talk about that. Yes, absolutely. You know, before um, the 1930s, Americans never really had to worry about nutrition. Um, we're talking now about sort of middle-class America. Um, the diet was um, so expansive that nutritional needs were met um, just in the course of, uh, of serving food to the family. Um, that changed during the Depression. Suddenly, um, women began to notice that their children were growing pale and sickly and tired, and the government began to explain that this was a result of a nutritional deficit. Um, so a, um, the people responsible for, for putting that message out were a group of women who called themselves home economists, and um, home economists ever since the 1920s had actually a bureau that was part of the federal government. It was part of the United States Department of Agriculture. And during the Depression, these women launched a massive campaign to educate Americans about this new science of nutrition. How was that initially received? Well, I'll tell you, there was tremendous fear um, among Americans. And there was, and that fear um, bred a kind of um, hunger for information. So, um, although people were um, skeptical, had traditionally been skeptical of newfangled nutritional dictums, during the Depression, it became necessary um, for the sake of the kids to understand things like vitamins and calories and protein and carbohydrates. 
There was also the issue of food that was needed and food charity that was given out at the time and, and really how that was perceived. Talk a little bit about that, Andrew. Well, um, food charity um, had been, go- you know, was, uh, predates the Depression, but it was always considered a local affair. It's something that um, churches handed out. Um, sometimes local governments handed out. Out in rural areas, you had the poor, the, the, uh, the poor house or the poor farm where people who, um, who, you know, people who couldn't work um, were, were kept fed and kept alive. But this was very, a very bare-bones thing. Um, and suddenly during the Depression, you, just, you didn't have just the traditional um, poor people who needed a handout and who needed some extra nutrition, but you had huge amounts of the population. Um, you know, 1932, 1933, the unemployment rose to about 25%, which was the highest it's, it's ever been in American history. And so lots and lots of people were hungry there. And um, at first in Washington, under the Hoover administration, there was tremendous resistance to food relief because this was thought to sap um, self-sufficiency and individual responsibility and sap people's work, will to work, and it was considered it was considered un-American. Um, but then, um, you know, one of the so Hoover didn't do anything, and um, the people became so frustrated um, that they were looking for for an alternative. And um, President uh, Roosevelt, in his campaign, said, "We have a positive duty to feed the people if there's no other if they have no other resources." And um, the, the people voted for him, you know, en masse, and, and uh, he was swept in in the tidal wave. And in 1933, he began a whole series of federal programs to hand out food directly to hungry, unemployed Americans. What impact did this have, Jane, on the business of food and, and the way in which food began to be seen and, and in many cases controlled by large companies even then? Um, well, I can tell you that the 1930s, in addition to all of these changes in nutrition and in the government role of food distribution, it also saw the rise of the food conglomerates, um, like our General Mills um, was, was sort of the big one. Um, one of the things that was happening um, with, uh, with, with food and the big food companies at the time is that... Um, the farmers, in addition to everybody else, were having a very rough time. And so what the government did was it bought food directly from um, the farms and handed them to the unemployed. So this gave um, the farmers, like, uh, you know, it, it really helped them because they didn't have any, and nobody could afford to buy their produce. And um, so that, that was, you know, supported the farmers and also um, fed the hungry. So it was a kind of a win-win situation. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there were also other people who did not like the fact that food was being given to the unemployed, like the big grocery store chains, um, because this was undercutting their own business. Um, because if nobody, if uh, people just got government directly from uh, food directly from the government, then, then they wouldn't be uh, going to the grocery store. But of course, on the other hand, they couldn't afford to buy at the grocery store. So, um, um, so there was, yeah, there was definitely tension um, over this. But um, on the other hand, people's lives were saved. One of the things that it also did, as far as the conglomerates were concerned, that you were talking about before, Jane, is that it put them in a position to figure out ways to make food less expensively, and really gave rise to a lot of what we see as processed food. Yes, 
although I should say that cost was not, um, or lowering costs, was not the primary motivation of the conglomerates during this period. What the conglomerates were really motivated by was delivering convenience. This was a period... Um, during which something known as the efficiency movement had taken hold of people's imagination. And the idea was to spend as little time manipulating food as possible and to have food um, that came to you almost ready to eat. So it's the beginning um, of frozen foods, but it was also a time for the, a great expansion in all kinds of other what we would call processed foods, including foods that were canned, packaged cereals, um, instant rice, instant tapioca, and, and, and so on and so on. And while this was focused on convenience, what link did it have to what had gone on with respect to food shortages and food crises during the Depression? It was actually um, sort of two separate tracks. Um, in a, these convenience foods were actually more expensive than than traditional bulk materials, um, and didn't really take off until after World War II. So this was a sort of experimental period during which the, the, the huge food conglomerates were kind of planning for the future. But also the fact of the Depression and um, the fact that a lot of um, food companies were having problems allowed the, the big corporations, the growing corporations like General Foods that had a lot of money, to, to buy them up. So this is when they sort of amassed their, their stable, um, if you will, of, um, of, of brands. Um, this is a great time to, to go in and, and, and swoop, swoop in and, and, and buy a brand. Um, for relatively little money. And of course, they could make the pitch for these brands within the context of these products having the proper nutritional values because of all that framework that had been set up during the Depression. Yes, that's absolutely true. The Depression is when we see um, the first fortified foods um, and uh, the first two fortified foods that we, that we have in our supermarkets, bread and breakfast cereals come out of that period. Andrew, talk a little bit about the way eating habits changed during this period and the way people looked at and related to food. Well, um, before the Great Depression, um, I mean, it's sort of hard to, to generalize about the, the entire country because it was, it was a very, you know, at, at that time, um, regional differences were a lot more acute than they are now. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, a lot of people still ate um, meat and potatoes, pie, bread, pancake kind of, you know, traditional diet, which has its roots in the 19th century. Um, but the Depression really began to force changes on, on American eating habits. Um, first of all, as Jane said, because you couldn't get um, that you couldn't afford to buy the meat anymore. But also people became really, really so concerned about nutrition. Um, that they began to change their eating habits because they wanted to make sure that they had enough, um, you know, their foods had enough nutrition and that they could get enough uh, nutrition for their children. Um, so this is when people really became, you know, um, anxious about this issue. And big food companies um, played on those fears and touted um, all the nutritional benefits of, of their foods, you know, nutritional benefits of ketchup 
and, um, you know, canned foods and frozen foods and everything like that. And people really began to see these new foods, these sort of um, foods produced um, um, by the, the big you know, food corporations um, as, as saviors and began to gravitate toward them. Um, and, of course, this changed the way that people cooked and also changed the way that people ate. And of course, Jane, to further to what Andrew was saying, is that it began yeah. a, a growing process of homogenization in terms of what yeah. we ate nationally. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I think between the new uh, nutritional experts and the food conglomerates, you begin to see this homogene- homogenizing process take place um, in the American sort of um, culinary landscape. And um, there was, in fact, during the Depression, a kind of backlash against that homogenization. And we can see that in figures like Sheila Hibben, whom we describe in the book, a, a food writer from the 1930s, who made it her mission to preserve regional food traditions. Besides her, where was some of the other pushback coming from? Um, well, another very interesting, what we call culinary salvage mission, um, came out of the, the Public Works Administration. It was a, a uh, food research project um, paid for by the federal government, which involved um, writers from all of the states going into the countryside and collecting food histories and food traditions that were to be published um, and um, which would hopefully save these regional food traditions before they disappeared. Andrew, talk a little bit about the impact that all this had on food distribution, the way it got to people, the way it got to grocery stores. Well, um, before the Great Depression, um, America was a much more regional country than it is today. Um, and one of the main reasons for that was the lack of um, good roads and, and, and adequate rail service. Um, and as part of um, the many public works um, projects of Roosevelt's New Deal, um, they built thousands and thousands of miles of roads all across the United States, linking all these rural um, towns and counties um, um, to the big cities. And this allowed um, farmers to find markets far beyond um, the nearest town, and suddenly they were, they were um, be, being able to ship their produce, let's say if they're Midwestern farmers, um, instead of to, to the county seat, to Chicago. Um, and this had huge effects on, on um, the, the way, the kind of food that people had available. Um, for instance, um, now you could get a lot more out-of-season produce. Um, because you could, um, if you were in New York during the winter, you could get, um, you know, fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables uh, from Florida and also from, um, from California. And um, this was, a, you know, a huge change um, in, in how America eats. Um, and the other big change was, was electrification. Um, before the, the Great Depression, large areas of the country, mostly rural areas, did not have electricity. Um, and along came President Roosevelt's Rural Electrification Administration, which set, you know, sent power lines all across the United States. And suddenly, you know, little, you know, isolated farms had electricity, and that meant that they could buy appliances. And among those appliances was um, the refrigerator, 
So they no longer had to um, rely on whatever the, 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 uh, the garden could produce or whatever kind of um, canned and pickled goods they had in their basement, but they could just buy frozen food at the, uh, at the grocery store and um, keep it in their freezer. And so, you know, the whole tradition of subsistence farming um, began to vanish because people didn't need to rely on their own, um, on their own uh, sweat and toil to get food. How did it change on a long-term basis the relationship of government to the food business? Certainly it expanded the Department of Agriculture. You talk about this Bureau of Home Economics that grew up during the Depression. Talk a little bit about that, Jane. First to you. Well, I would say that the Great Depression marks the beginning of government involvement in the daily culinary lives of Americans. Um, first, we were receiving nutritional recommendations from the government, and that had never been the government's business before. We were receiving actual the food distributions themselves from the government. That was also precedent-setting. Um, and um, we are still, in some ways, um, arguing or ambivalent about what role the government should play in in what we eat, and that was, you know, part of your great lead-in, um, bringing us all the way up to um, to Michelle Obama today. I mean, what Michelle Obama is doing, I would say, comes directly out of the changes that were taking place during the Depression. Jane Ziegelman. Andrew Coe, their book is A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression. Jane, Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.